Hi, this is Wilson, pastor of Renew Church. We're a church for imperfect people only. Thanks for listening to our podcast. There's a few links in the podcast description. If you're looking to get connected, just fill out the Google form or shoot me an email. I would love to help you experience Renew as a family of God. We also have our PayPal giving link if you want to invest in this church community. Because of your generous giving, Renew is able to be a mission team to the city and care for people with special needs, mentoring at-risk youth, and support kids in the foster system. Lastly, subscribe to this podcast and scroll back to listen through the whole book of Matthew and other books of the Bible we've already preached through. This week, we're finishing up our Matthew series, and I preached through the resurrection of Christ. It was amazing to look at all the characters in that passage and how they responded to the resurrection. I hope that it makes me and you think about our response to the resurrection of Jesus as well. Enjoy the message. We are finishing up the book of Matthew, and today we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Christ, highlighting four specific characters that I think represent us in our journey with Jesus. But before that, true to renew tradition, we um, in our small group Zooms, we do a discussion and we did that in live service. We break off into small groups of two or three and do a kind of an opening question and everyone really enjoyed that. But if you're not in a small group, you could go ahead and put a comment on our Facebook live feed and participate that way. So the question is, what is an obvious lie that someone you know believes? Um, Maybe someone believes that the coronavirus isn't actually a virus. One of my friends put an article up on that, and the source was a motivational speaker. Um, But do you have a friend or someone you know that believes in something that you're just like, wow, that is obviously a lie? I'm going to give us three to five minutes uh, in our small groups, and then we'll come in and look at the passage together. All right. I hope that was a fun discussion for you. One of my favorite communities after watching Netflix are Flat Earthers. Have you ever seen the Netflix Flat Earthers? I'm a documentary addict. And so I'll watch any documentary basically. And I love entering into the world of, of, of an obsession that no one else cares about, right? And this is kind of one of them. So the guy here, his name's Mark Sargent. He's one of the leaders of the Flat Earther movement. And, um, you know, very true to its name, they believe that the earth is flat. You have a community of people doing conferences and running experiments talking about why they believe the earth is flat and how that's possible and drawing a mo- models for it. So holding in his hand, he has a model of a flat earth, like what a flat earth would look like. And there's several models, there's several kind of iterations of a flat earth theory and, and, and why that's come to be. But I think what's most fascinating to me is when they run very logical experiments trying to prove that the earth is flat. So one of these experiments, uh, they're out in the middle of the night when it's pitch black. They have an extremely powerful laser. And then they have these markers that have holes in the markers at the same height. They put these markers miles apart. And they're saying that if the earth is flat, I can shine this 
laser through all of the holes miles apart. But if the Earth has a curvature, then the laser in the next few markers would not appear anymore or appear higher on the marker than the hole is because of the curvature of the Earth. And surprising ending, that's exactly what happens, right? So their experiment failed. It doesn't go all through the holes. It basically proves that the Earth has a curvature. And immediately, as they're watching this result, they get very disappointed. But they're not disappointed that the Earth has a curve. They're disappointed that their experiment failed. So they hardcore compartmentalize their experiment as a failure without concluding that the Earth is actually curved. So I, for me, like denial of truth is a fascinating thing. I'm, I, I love hearing stories of people deny blatant, uh, unadulterated, in-your-face truth. And when I look at the four characters that we're going to study through the book of Matthew, chapter 27, the Pharisees are basically flat earthers. And that's what it says on the next slide. The Pharisees and the flat earthers. And this is, I would consider, a category of people, right? So we're, we're looking at these characters, but I see them as types of people. Now, when you look at the Pharisees, they were the persecutors of Jesus. They were the ones who uh, tried him in the Sanhedrin court, um, came up with false allegations so that he would be crucified before Pilate um, and, and all the people in Jerusalem. But even as Jesus was being crucified, we have them mock Jesus, saying that if you can come down from the cross, we will worship you. We will become your followers, okay? So they came in with the presupposition that he's not actually God, and if he was, they would follow him. And now if you look at Matthew 27, 62, by the way, we're going to skip around because we're doing character studies. So I, I, I would love for you to take out your Bible and start marking things up with me. In 62, we have them approach uh, Pilate after Jesus is buried. And they're very concerned. And it says in verse 63, Sir, they said, we remember that while Jesus was alive, that deceiver, Jesus said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And so we have the Pharisees who are knowledgeable, as Jesus' disciples were, that he had alluded to rising again on the third day. Not a lot of people put stock in that, but the Pharisees wanted to prevent a deception that the disciples would steal the body and pretend Jesus has resurrected. And so they asked Pilate, and Pilate gives them all the resources, right? They basically took like Spartans with them from 300, uh, who you don't need a, that many of them to kill off dozens of peasants so the, they felt very confident that the that the tomb was secure it also had a seal on it which basically um said that if you violated and tried to rob the tomb your life would be in danger that you would be a fugitive of the roman empire okay now after that had happened we see in chapter 28 1 through 5 again skipping a little bit that there was a violent earthquake an angel of the lord came down from heaven and going to to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
he appeared, his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. So the guards witnessed an angel rolling back the tomb. They practically witnessed the resurrection of Christ and they are afraid. And again, it would be like a Spartan being scared out of his mind, right? It, it just doesn't happen. They've seen legions, hordes of, of armies uh, encamped around them and they fought furiously and now they see an angel. These men never retreat and in the face of an angel, they did. Now, after that had happened, they went back to the chief priest in verse 12 of 28 and, and they told them everything that had happened. But, but what, go, what happens after they report? The chief priest gives the soldiers a large sum of money, basically bribes them and says, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. And that's a really unsatisfactory conspiracy theory, knowing that these guards really had their lives on the line as well. When you fail a mission like that, you're forfeiting your life. So they weren't going to let that happen. But that was basically the rumor that circulated, as, as it says in verse 15. Okay, I just want us to take a breath. Jesus is astounded, right? What, maybe one of the most often times he's astounded is when people lack faith is when the Pharisees see a demon being casted out and then says, you're the prince of demons. Like he's just surprised when he heals a blind man and the Pharisees investigate this because it happens on the Sabbath and him and his father testify that he's always been blind and they're mad at Jesus. Right. And here they have a full on witness to Jesus resurrecting from the dead. They hear a firsthand account of this. That doesn't happen often. <laughs> the resurrection of a person has never happened. And in the face of all of the, this evidence, they don't argue it. They're not saying the guards are a liar. They don't, they don't deny his resurrection. They simply turn away and continue to pursue their agenda. That's that's saying something. When you see a resurrection of, of the Messiah and you can just kind of walk away, I, I think that it's astounding. It's astounding the degree of disbelief or um, deception that humanity is willing to endure, is willing to, is capable of. And we see this with the Pharisees. Um, when we think about the resurrection of Christ, though, I, I think all of us can be Pharisees because we have amazing access to this event. In terms of historical documentation and evidence, the resurrection for ancient texts, the death and resurrection of Christ is superb. We have eyewitnesses. We have it in the context of an emperor empire that we're very familiar with, that we have extra um writing for outside of scripture. We have timestamps. I mean, this wasn't a fictional myth. This is a historic document. And you think about all the religions out there, all the cults out there, all the leaders out there, and how no one in the context of history has ever claimed to resurrect from the dead. 
That's a really difficult claim to make, especially when it's not staged, when it's not David Copperfield controlling all of it, the environment. You have a, a licensed executioner and the Roman soldiers. You have a very public event. You have someone who goes into the tomb for three days. And these eyewitnesses are bearing the news that Jesus has resurrected. And we and their accounts are tested to the point of death. They all die in testifying that this actually happened. You know, not a lot of people will die for even a truth that they believe, right? Like if I put a gun to a flat earther's head and said, do you really believe in flat earth? I think all of them are going to re renege. If you put a gun to my head and say, do you b really believe that the earth is round? I'll renege on that. Like, I'll, I'll believe it in my mind, but I'll say whatever you want. Uh, I'll deny even true statements in order to not die and be with my kids. To, to have a statement that you believe and will profess to your death, there's no greater um, accountability for someone's, someone's truth. And so you have, in historic context, in, in a history book, a man who has died and resurrected. And you have other men, eyewitnesses, give that account to death. All of us are just, you know, I kind of make fun of the Pharisees. They're one degree separated from this event. They're eyewitnesses to it. But I'd say we're only two degrees separated because we cross space and time on the account of Matthew and Mark and, and, uh, and John, who saw this happen and is reporting it to us. There is no greater evidence for God coming to earth and backing up every single claim he makes besides resurrection. But I also think about really personal moments. And I think we've all had them where we're desperate for something and we cry out to God. Some of us don't even know if he's real, but we've all been in that spot where we're cornered, where we're afraid, where we have no options and we just cry out to God. And he replies and responds to us in a dramatic way, in a miraculous way. And then for some of us, we forget about it and just kind of let it go even though we've made promises to follow him to do right by him to to believe in him we can let those miracles those evidences of God that are extremely personal be explained away you know I, I met this uh, girl in volleyball I asked her permission to share the story her name's Maggie and uh, we're just hanging out that's the best part about volleyball it's kind of the social life behind it and she said, man, I'm looking for a really good church. And I said, I, I know of a good church. She's like, can the pastor preach? I'm like, oh, he's an excellent preacher, right? And basically, I ended up inviting her to renew. And then hearing a little bit about her, her journey, like what made you interested in God? And she said that one day she was on a walk and basically a car hits her really hard. Uh, she got injured, but she just in that moment said, man, like I believe that God protected me. And when that happened, I, I believed he was real. And, and, I, and I wanted to learn more about him and pursue him. And, you know, I've heard that story quite a few times as a pastor. But I looked at Maggie and I said, I commend you 
that this was a moment you continue to pursue. Like you didn't let that decision fade away. You didn't forget about it. You continued to pursue Jesus. And it's been amazing to see her a part of our church community. You know, I wonder how God has reached into each of our lives. And if it's made an impact on us or like the Pharisees, we just kind of excuse one miracle after another to pursue our own agenda where we can even excuse the blatant, you know, showing of Jesus' resurrection. When I, when I think about the Pharisees, I think about friends who said, you know, I would believe in Jesus if he appeared next to me right now. I've talked to friends like that, like, hey, Wilson, you're a pastor. Ask Jesus to stand here and say I'm real, and then I'll believe in Jesus. Like, give me undeniable evidence. There was a time where I felt like, man, God, why don't you do that? And then I look at the Pharisees. I'm like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, if you don't want to believe in God, you're not going to believe in him. These people, in the face of someone coming back from life, kind of shrugged their shoulders, started a conspiracy theory, and just moved on. You know, I, and, and you know, if you're, if you've ever read Descartes, like, it makes sense. If I really want to believe something's untrue, I can deny close to every single thing in front of me. Um, but if I, if I want to believe, what does that look like? What does it look like to step in with faith? And that's what we see in the next three characters. We see people who decide on Jesus. The centurion and the other sinners. When I think about the centurion, um, I think about how he was a soldier who commanded about 100 soldiers under him. And he was guarding Jesus in verse 54 of Matthew 27. He saw earthquake and all that had happened when Jesus gave up his spirit in verse 50. And it says they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Now, if anyone should resist becoming Christian because of something evil they've done, being a part of Jesus' crucifixion is kind of, it's hard to beat that, you know? Like, if you're commanding your soldiers to nail him to the cross, if you're watching your soldiers mock him and put on a crown of thorns, if you're laughing with everyone else, why would you ever feel qualified to become a Christian. And I think that's all of us at some point, right? All of us have done something that we feel like, man, I'll just, I can never set a foot a, through the doorway of a church. And maybe that's why you're listening online. It feels a little safer. Or you go back to a moment and you just feel like it disqualifies you. I think that's the beauty of 51. It says, at that moment when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, the Holy of Holies, which is within the temple, housed the presence of God. But it had these really specific and clear separations between the presence of God and the priests who 
for most of the year resided in the temple courts, but were not allowed to go into Holy Holies. Once a year, the high priest would sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. But even then, he had to go through an enormous amount of ritual. He had bells uh, on his robe for the other priests kind of to know whether he's still alive because it's scary to enter into God's presence. And there's rabbinic teaching that they actually had a rope around his ankle. It's not in the Bible, but there's uh, kind of that Jewish tradition where if he gets struck down, no one can go inside, so they just pull him out. Why is the presence of God like that? Well, it's not that God runs from sin or evil. It's that when a sinful person comes in front of a holy, just God, which is part of who he is, we melt and die. Like prophets... God shows up in front of prophets and they just start crying and begging for their life because he is holy and we're not, we're sinful. We just start melting in his presence. And so when, G, when, when Moses said, God, if you don't come with us, I'm not going. And God's like, I don't know if you want my presence with sinful people, like judgment kind of happens. And he's like, you have to come with us. So he says, God tells Moses, build a tabernacle I'm going to be with you, but you have to contain my glory. That's what the tabernacle was. It was a shield for the glory of God. The temple was a shield for God's glory so that he could be with his people while shielding his holiness and his judgment so that they can be in his presence with that shield and not be punished. When Jesus dies, he covers us with his blood so that we are forgiven. We gain his righteousness and there's this amazing thing that happens where we get to walk into the Holy of Holies. Hebrews talks about how we can move to in the presence of God with confidence because of this high priest, Jesus, who has died for our sins. And in his death, the centurion, a Gentile, someone who was with the soldiers as they crucified Christ, he's the first to walk in. Him and his men, crucified Jesus, but because of Christ's for forgiveness, walk into the Holy of Holies. And that's another response to the resurrection. One is to deny the very presence and evidence of God. And then the other is to say, though I'm a sinner, you welcome me. You've died for me. And even though it sounds outlandish and scandalous that the centurion and the soldiers will walk into his presence. Wasn't it all of us who Jesus took the nails for? Wasn't it all of us that he took the crown of thorns, the insults, the accusations? Wasn't it for all of us that he died? And because of that, all of us get to live and walk into his presence as well. The third person I want to talk about is Joseph of Arimathea. And I call him and the people kind of like him, the slow rollers. Okay. Slow rolling is a poker term for those of you who are unfamiliar. Don't ask me how I know. And it's extremely insulting, by the way. It's like the worst thing you can do on the poker table. You might as well punch someone in the face, but it's like you, you, you know, you won the hand. Maybe you have the nuts, maybe the person, the uh, the caller flipped his cards already. You know you won, 
So in order to milk that win, you kind of slowly roll over your cards to kind of cherish the moment. But everyone at the table will, will hate you and uh, you might cause fights. So Joseph was kind of like that. He was a slow roller. He didn't reveal his cards that he was a follower, follower of Jesus for a big part of Jesus' ministry. We see him curious about Jesus. We see him early in Jesus' ministry, ask him questions. Even this, It even describes him as a disciple, but he's afraid of the Jews. He's afraid of the Jewish leaders, and he had status with them. He had rapport. He was a part of the Sanhedrin Council, which is kind of the highest tier of, of the Jewish religious society. And he was very reputable there. Like people looked up to him. But as he put his faith in Jesus, he was, he was kind of slow to um, come forward with his faith. Now, um, we see him do this, though, in chapter 28, verse 57. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that was had cut out of rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now Joseph was a man of, of, of great means. He had a lot of money because at the time there was mass graves. It was underground. So to have a grave above the ground in a, in a tomb um, that was probably carved out, it took a lot of resource. And Joseph plays a really surprising role in Jesus' resurrection story. He gives them the tomb in which Jesus resurrects out of. And within this request, he's going against the Pharisees. He's going against his team, if you will. He joins the enemy and he reveals his allegiance to Jesus. I think this is another important type because many of us can be slow rollers. Like we grow up at church uh, we've heard of Jesus. We, we've sang the worship songs. But just like the crowd in this gospel, at some point you have to make a decision. There's going to be a line drawn in the sand where you, you need to make a decision for whether you're going to be bold and courageous with your faith or whether you're going to shrink back in fear and end up going against Christ. That was kind of teetering of the crowd. They were undecided through the whole gospel and even days before the crucifixion they were saying Jesus Hosanna right they were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as a conqueror and a few days later they were they were asking for him to be crucified we all at the end of the day make a decision and all of us in seeing the death and resurrection of Christ, in being confronted with the reality of the scripture, not just as a myth or a Bible story or a Sunday school lesson, but Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's God? That he does it for you to forgive you? Because those reality should be the line in the sand. If you really believe it, you're going to live and be bold in a, in a very specific way. Your life will evidence that belief. If you are just familiar with the story, but you don't really believe it, you don't really believe that he's God because you want to be, then your life will evidence that as well. The third group of people are the women of the story. If there's any hero outside of Jesus, it's really the women who, who emerge 
as the greatest disciples um, of Jesus' ministry. I mean, all the disciples are scattered. They ran away. Peter's denied him. And then we see the woman quietly follow Jesus through the process of the crucifixion into Calvary. I believe ministering to him with their tears. And they had been with them for many parts of the journey. That was one of the unique aspects of Jesus' ministry, that he was teaching and training women as well. They would sit under him and travel with him. Probably a really scandalous thing to do in his time. And when you look at the passage here, we see in, in chapter 2755, uh, many women were there watching from a distance. This is back to his crucifixion. They have followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And then after, uh, during the resurrection, we see in verse 28, chapter 28, verse 1, after the Sabbath, the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So they were the first to go and look for Jesus. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't John. It was the woman. I would say they, would ha- they had the most faith and hope in him. Then a violent angel appears, you know, um, and they ignore the guards, the angels. They tell the woman in, cha- in verse 5, don't be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He is risen, verse 6. Come and see the place where he laid. Verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Now, this was a really unusual event in in the Jewish context because women were totally discredited in their testimony, in the court of law, and in society. So for Jesus to ask the women to tell the men was an amazing um, statement to his importance and care for the women in his life. He was elevating them. I, I think this whole narrative elevates them. Suddenly, Jesus met them. So after the crucifixion, his death and resurrection, he meets with the women first. Does that amaze you? Jesus doesn't meet with Peter or John or James. He meets with the women who were with him through Calvary, who were weeping for him and are weeping for him now. He goes and he comforts them. It says, he says, greeting, he says, they came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now, the John account, I think, is even more intimate. Jesus shows up on, on Mary's, as Mary is weeping, and she thinks he's a gardener. So, so he, she asks him, where did you lay the body of Jesus? And then, and then Jesus says to her, Mary. I don't know if you've noticed that when people call your name and they're, they're really close to you, they say it in a distinct and recognizable way. It's like your name holds your identity to them. Liam will call me Appa and it will, it will have meaning. Like I'll know it's Liam, not just by the sound of his voice, but how he says my name, how Nina says my name, how my close friends say my name. There's an intimacy about it. 
a knowing of who I am. When Jesus says the name Mary, her eyes are open. He's revealed to her. But it's such an intimate moment. Jesus knew her name. Jesus knew her story. Jesus, Jesus knew her. You know, when I think about Mary and the other women in this gospel, I termed them a few slides back, um, object permanence. It's the psychological term, right? So object permanence is, is something you develop uh, a, a little close to your first year of life. Before you have object permanence, when something's uh, blocked, or you can't see it anymore, you think they're gone. You think it's disappeared, right? So if I take this microphone head and I block it, if you didn't have object permanence, you would be like, oh, it's, it's, it's here. It's gone. It's gone. Where is it? It's here. It's gone. And that's why babies freak out when they can't see their mom because they think they've disappeared, right? But when you gain object permanence, you know that even though it's hiding, it still exists. You just can't see it. So a more mature love uh, is like me and Nina when she's at work. I believe she still not only exists, but that she still loves me. When we fight, I believe most of the time that she still loves me. When she's swooning over Captain Ree from crash landing on you, I believe she still loves me, right? There's this object permanence in my relationship with her. Um, I wonder in our Christian journey if we have object permanence. Do we just kind of forget about Jesus? When we stop seeing him. Do we forget that he's real when we're suffering? Do we forget that he's good when, when we can't hear him? Is Jesus only in front of us when we, when we have feelings? When we get tingles? When things are going right in our lives and our prayers are answered? Or are we able to face death and still believe in Christ? There are many, many deaths in our life, Pete Gazzaro says. And we see that with Job. He faced so many deaths, relational deaths, deaths in his possession, deaths in his health. And he believed that God was still good and blessed him. He had object permanence. He believed in God when God was hiding. Mary and the woman believed in Jesus when Jesus was hiding. If there's a, a group of people to aspire to become, it's these women. It's these women who are willing to go through the valleys, go through death, go through uh, the, the desert because they believed that God is good and that he knows Jesus knew her name. Right? It wasn't this generic Messiah it was a savior who could call her name in a way that was weighted with identity and care and love. The resurrection of Jesus, it, yes, it's a historical event laced with evidence. Yes, it's, it's entry into the presence of God. But it also needs to become personal. It needs, the resurrection of Christ needs to be Jesus alive in relationship with you, that he would be able to, you would be confident that Jesus knows your name and says it with richness and meaning. And when you say Jesus, it's the Jesus of the Bible and it's the Jesus who's appeared to you through prayers 
interlace with your story as your best friend. The resurrection of Christ means that we get to have a relationship with a living God and not just read about a scholar and teacher. When you look at these different characters and how they responded to the same incident, which one are you? Are you the skeptic, the Pharisee, who just lets another miracle um, be drowned in your own pursuits? Are you the soldiers who also witnessed an angel but would rather have money? Or are you the centurion? Are you Joseph? Are you Mary? Who, even though they're in different phases of their, their journey, all step towards Jesus and the reality of the resurrection, wanting to draw near to him. God, we come to you this morning and we believe that you have risen from the dead and, and died to forgive us and to have relationship with us. And I know that there's some of us this morning who are willing to step through that broken curtain to be in your presence. And, and, I, and I pray for them, Lord, that you would allow them to, to know that you're real, to know that you love them, and to know that you died for their sin and resurrected so that they can have a relationship with you. You know, if, if that's you this morning, I want to lead you in a, in a quick prayer. But I think this prayer really sums up the Christian faith. It's not really hard to become a Christian. You can see in the centurion, he echoes a short phrase that have been echoed throughout centuries. You are the son of God. And can we say that this morning? Is that a desire of your heart to say, Jesus is the son of God? that he does forgive me and I want a relationship with him. If that's you this morning, I'm going to I'm going to pray a short prayer and I would invite you to pray that with me. Jesus, thank you for loving me. I confess that I've sinned and and done wrong in my life. I can't make up for those things. But I thank you for dying on the cross to forgive me and raising again so that I can have a relationship with you. Jesus, would you be my Lord and Savior this morning? Amen.